An update on the treacherous Dr. Deborah Burks. New details on the January 6, 2021 murder of Ashley Babbitt. And will the mainstream media tell you about the good guy with a gun who just stopped a mass shooting? No? Well, I will on this edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We are the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 196 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Monday, July 18th, 2022. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time. A lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to mention. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. All right, now, before I get to the good guy with the gun that stopped a mass shooting, before I get to the new details in the January 6, 2021 murder of Ashley Babbitt, and before I get to the update on the treacherous Dr. Deborah Burks, former, formerly of the COVID-19 team under the Trump White House, I got to give you an update on Uvalde. Breaking news from the postmillennial.com. And this is a this is a rough one. Nearly 400 local, state, and federal officers waited outside Uvalde school as gunmen targeted children. That is the new report from the Texas State House Representatives. Systemic failures and egregious errors are at fault, according to a new report released by the Texas House on the May 24th Uvalde, Texas massacre, in which a lone gunman entered the Robb Elementary School and murdered 19 children and two teachers. Leadership and the lack of a command structure were also to blame. There were nearly 400 officers on the scene as the gunmen massacred children and teachers for 73 minutes. There were 149 U.S. Border Patrol agents, 91 state police, 25 Uvalde police, 16 members of the Uvalde Sheriff's Office, and five members of the school district police, in addition to members of law enforcement from surrounding communities. The report, 44 days in the making, comes after the release of surveillance video from the school on that day, which shows that 73 minutes passed between the time the shooter entered the school and when policemen finally took out the gunman. All right, let me go to uh, cut one from Texas State Representative Dustin Burroughs. 
uh, talking about the release of the report. What I would like to do today is start with this. If there's only one thing that I can tell you is there were multiple systemic failures. I would invite everybody to read the entire report. You cannot cherry pick one sentence and use it to say everything without reading it all together and with context. But if we need a simple phrase to describe what the report says, again, I would tell you multiple systemic failures. There you go. Multiple systemic failures. That's Dustin Burroughs, Texas State House Rep, about this new report. The postmillennial.com continues reports from the press conference indicate that some victims of the shooter could have been saved had officers entered the classroom without waiting for over an hour. State Congressman Dustin Burroughs said that the officers who knew or should have known that this was an active shooter situation by their training experience should have done more. All right, let's go to uh, cut two. Texas State Rep. Dustin Burroughs. I'm going to start with this. I'm going to ask my colleagues if they want to comment on it as well. Multiple systemic failures. Our report does not look at other comments that have been made to try to compare or contrast them whatsoever. We laid out the basic facts as we were charged with to do. And what I said early on about law enforcement, the officers who knew or should have known that this was an active shooter situation by their training experience should have done more. We are very clear on that. Not every officer on the scene had that same information and had that same opportunity to comply with their training. One of the things this committee has not done because we're a three-person committee is to go through and determine which which law enforcement personnel knew what, what did they know, and when they knew it. In order to do that, I think that's going to take many months to go through all the different video, body camera footage, and to figure out, and I think there's other investigatory arms trying to figure out what did this person know, when did they know it, and you know what did they do with it. And I think you're going to need all of that to try to make all of those questions. But we do say there was chaos on the scene, and certainly, certainly, with the chaos, people should have asked, why is there not an incident commander? Why there's not an overall commander outside the building helping try to organize that? Okay, man, I will say this. There was an earlier report from the uh, Texas Department of Public Safety, okay? The state police. And they were pinning a lot on the local police. But the report from the state house representatives is saying, oh, no, no, no. State police are there too. It just wasn't, it wasn't just the local guys. State police are there too. So I'm thinking it's probably going to fall to the state legislature to continue the investigation instead of relying on any law enforcement agency because they're all pointing fingers at each other. When, from what this guy is saying, um, they were all there. Okay? Uh, the postmillennial.com continues on the day of the massacre. 
Officers on the ground appeared to be unclear as to who was in charge when officers attempted to go ahead into the room. They were prevented from doing so. Uvalde School District Police Chief Pete Arredondo reportedly said, tell them, tell them to effing wait. Wow. Okay, here's a comment from a former Texas Supreme Court Justice Ava Guzman. One of the things that, that we've learned from this is the importance of an incident commander and the information that's relayed out. We know we didn't have that here, and you're asking why the information was told the way it was. Who knew what, when? The failure to have an incident commander on the scene to receive information and to communicate with the media, I believe, in part, led to some of the information that was reported inaccurately. You know, I've got an observation here which really has nothing to do about the report on the shooting. But it is just remarkable to me with all the money that a state legislature has in a big state like Texas that they can't afford a decent sound system. That everything, there's no, no base, no mid-range, everything trouble. I, I used to have the same, the same challenge when I would try to um, play audio on the air on my radio talk show in Little Rock, Arkansas, with a committee hearing from a an Arkansas state legislature um, committee. The audio was just terrible. And I'm thinking, you guys have all the money in the world. Why not get a decent sound system? But Texas, what's the excuse? Anyway, enough of my complaining about that. The postmillennial.com article continues, former Texas Supreme Court Justice Ava Gozman spoke about the failure of leadership, saying that anyone who is not willing to put the lives of the people you serve of those children before your own should find another job. Those facts will allow those agencies to take a deeper dive into the actions of law enforcement and hold them accountable. The report says if you're not willing to put the lives of the people you serve, of those children, before you are owned, in my view, you should find another job. Yeah, that's the deal. And these guys have been through training recently. Okay, and I got a question too. Why does a school district need a police department? Do these people just have more money than they know what to do with? Why does a school district need a police department? If the school's inside the city limits, what's wrong with using the city police? If the school is in the county, outside the city limits, what's wrong with using the sheriff's department? Because clearly, the school district police department is useless, worse than useless. Just a thought. All right. The postmillennial.com article continues. State Representative Dustin Burroughs said during the conference that the school was not prepared for a school shooter despite policies that were in place to prevent 
mass murder by an unlawful intruder. Let me tell you a little bit about the reports. We talk about the Valley Consolidated Independent School District. And let me say this. With hindsight, we can say the Robb Elementary was not adequately prepared for the risk of a school shooter. The school's five-foot fence was inadequate. Despite a policy of locked doors, there was a regrettable culture of noncompliance. In fact, all three exterior doors to the building were unlocked that day, and multiple interior doors were not secured the day of the shooting. When I talk about the false sense of security, I do not believe... The Uvalde Consolidated or Robb Elementary is the only school with these issues in it. I've talked to enough other educators around the state to believe this is a wider problem that we need to continue to look at. All right, Fox News reports the report does say that it's plausible that some of the victims could have survived if they did not have to wait some 73 minutes before they were rescued. Now, again... Texas State Rep. Dustin Burroughs said that there was every likelihood that the door to the classroom where the children and teachers were killed, 111, and connecting with classroom 112, was unlocked. He says that's likely. Initial reports were that the door was locked and a janitor's key was needed for border control. Officers to open it, reports at the press conference on Sunday indicated there might never be an answer, but that it was likely that the door was not locked and could have been breached by officers at any time. Oh, my goodness. So another clip from Texas State Rep uh, Dustin Burroughs. So two things in the report, we go to great pains to try to set what actually the context of that statement related to the evacuation. I I think when you read it all together, I'll do that. Let me address the key because I think this is very important. A lot of questions have asked about it. The board, the statements from BORTAC were, yes, they put a key in the door and they unlocked it. There is enough information to be very uncertain whether or not that door was ever locked. The committee believes, based on all the testimony and information we've received, it was very likely that door was either not locked or secured at the time. However, I am not willing to tell you with 100% absolute certainty that we know, and we may never know, whether or not that door was actually locked and secured at that time. But there's a strong emphasis, and we put it in the report, that it is more likely than not, very strong, that if somebody had just gone up and tried the door handle, they could have opened it without a key. Horrifying. Horrifying. So the liberals are all out there saying, see? Told you a good guy with a gun doesn't work. There are all those good guys with guns. And we're like, wait a minute, y'all the same liberals that don't believe that anybody but cops should have guns. You know, getting a liberal to reason from point A to point C is almost impossible. Most of them can't even get from point A to point B. Anyway, the uh, postmillennial.com wraps up their article saying the findings of the report will be used by Texas lawmakers to see what needs to be changed as a new school year 
approaches to prevent massacres like this from happening again. The investigation found that many of the security failures in Uvalde were similar to those that can be found across the country. Well, the problem, one of the big problems, perhaps even the biggest problem, is the Federal Safe Schools Act that Joe Biden pushed through the Senate over 30 years ago, which made it against the law for school employees like teachers, coaches, principals, counselors, janitors, anybody to carry a gun. You know? Because that could have taken care of a lot, right? So, um, speaking of good guys with guns, more breaking news from Sunday night, July 17th, 2022. A shooting Sunday evening at a shopping mall in an Indianapolis suburb left four people, including the shooter, dead and two others injured, according to local media. Wow. At approximately 6 p.m. local time in Indianapolis, officers responded to a call regarding an active shooter who began firing in the food court at the Greenwood Park Mall in Greenwood, Indiana. While law enforcement worked to secure the scene and clear the mall, emergency services arrived to treat the wounded and transport them to Eskenazi Hospital. So we have um, a guy named Rafael Sanchez, who is a TV reporter for WRTV, the ABC news affiliate in Indianapolis. And his report is uh, embedded and the article from the postmillennial.com. Let's see what he had to say. Rafael Sanchez, good evening with the very latest as the Greenwood Police Department just giving us some new information. The latest numbers include four people dead, including the actual shooter and two people going to the hospital. I can now also confirm that a good Samaritan who was in the food court when the shooter came into the Greenwood Park Mall at around 6.05, that that good Samaritan is being credited for bringing down the shooter. No other details are being provided. We can tell you that based on what the police chief is telling me, that the gunman who entered the mall is being described as an adult male who was holding some sort of rifle, a long rifle with several magazines. No other information is being provided at this moment. We're working with all of our sources. We'll bring you more information as it develops here from the Greenwood Park Mall in the city of Greenwood, just south of Indianapolis. Rafael Sanchez, WRTV. That's... uh. That's good journalism from a local TV reporter. Guys on the ball. You don't see that every day. So God bless him. Greenwood, Indiana, police chief James Ison said in a press conference, a good Samaritan with a handgun at the mall killed the shooter. 
He said the two others who are wounded and are being treated in area hospitals. He also said police have confiscated a suspicious backpack that was in a bathroom near the food court. So let's see. I I think we've got... um, Oh, I got it. There's there's a link to uh, there's an embedded uh, tweet from Shannon Watts, Moms Demand Action. She is an anti-gun nut, so I'm not going to be able to do that because um, she's got me blocked. Well, I don't know. We might be able to play it out of the article. Let's see if we can get get it. Okay this this just shows a uh, an ambulance coming into the. Uh, into the mall, and Shannon Watts, the anti-gun nut, the self-hating woman, in my opinion, who wants women to be defenseless against much larger men. She tweeted out, police say at least two people are dead after a gunman opened fire at Greenwood Mall in Indianapolis. Well, no, it's in Greenwood, but anyway. She says, Governor Holcomb signed permitless carry into law in Indiana over the objections of law enforcement, and it went into effect on July 1. Well, thank God that means the Good Samaritan was there to save lives, which is exactly what she doesn't want to happen. Exactly what she doesn't want to happen. She wants you defenseless. By the way, before uh, before she became an anti-gun nut, making a lot of money with Moms Demand Action, getting a lot of that Michael Bloomberg money, she was a, a lobbyist for Monsanto, just for those of you scoring at home. The postmillennial.com story winds up saying police have only described the shooter as an adult male and added that he had a long rifle and several magazines of ammunition. According to authorities, there is no ongoing threat. According to the Greenwood Police, Indianapolis Police, and other law enforcement agencies were assisting. Um, they would provide more details later on into the night. Have you heard anything about this in the mainstream media? I mean, talk radio shows could very well talk about it during the day Monday, but uh, I wanted to get the jump on it. So there you go. I wanted to get the jump on it. Now, I can't tell you how much we appreciate our friends and our advertisers for making it possible for us to do the Doc Washburn Show five days a week. If you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options on it. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions and then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. 
All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live. RedRiverYourWay.com. You will be glad you did. All right, let me ask you this. Does your financial advisor take the time to listen and get to know you? Is your financial strategy personalized for you and your family? Will your financial advisor be there as your life and financial situations change? When you work with Jonathan Presswood, he focuses on what's important to you. He uses an established process to help you achieve your unique goals, whether that's preparing for retirement, making your money last in retirement, planning your estate or inheritance, preparing for the unexpected, or anything else. Jonathan Presswood can help. Now, what should you do if you leave a job and have a 401K or other retirement plan? Or if you're getting close to retirement or already in retirement? Call my friend, Jonathan Presswood, today. He'll help you create a personalized financial strategy backed by the advice, tools, and resources to help you reach your goals. And he'll partner together with you to help your strategy stay on track no matter what life throws at you. Listen, we can all dream of having a perfect retirement, but how many of us will actually experience it? No matter where you are today, Jonathan Presswood is offering a free retirement analysis to figure out where you'd like to be and what it will take to get you there, and there's no obligation. Contact Jonathan Presswood, a financial advisor with Edward Jones Investments, today at 501-303-4844. Again, that's 501-303-4844. Don't wait. Call Jonathan Presswood today at 501-303-4844. Now, if you're like me, you can't remember phone numbers, go to our website, docwashburnshow.com. Just click on the link to Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones. Edward Jones, making sense of investing. Member SIPC. Thanks again to our friends and advertisers, Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones Financial. Also, Mitch Ward at Red River Your Way. Big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to. Online, have it delivered to your front door. Uh, anywhere in the continental United States. All right, so I want to, uh, before we get to the update on the treacherous Dr. Deborah Burks, and before we get to the new date details of the January 6, 2021 murder of Ashley Babbitt, U.S. Congressman Ronnie Jackson, Republican of Texas, former White House doctor under Trump and Obama, has some pretty biting things to say about Joe Biden. As a matter of fact, he got an email from Barack Obama complaining, condemning him as unprofessional for the things he said about Biden. Here's Ronnie Jackson, former White House doctor for Trump and Obama. Now, you you put out a tweet uh, and you say that he will not, Biden will not finish his term. Uh, and you say that uh, he should resign. 
Tell me about this. Should and will are two different things. How do you see this playing out? Well, I think he will. And, and, I, and I say that because I just don't see this getting any better. This is, uh, you know, all of these issues we talked about with cognitive decline related to age, they, 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 they get worse, not better with time. And this is going to continue to get worse and they're going to have to do something about it. Now, I don't know if they'll go so far as to enact the 25th Amendment or to uh, talk him into resigning based on this cognitive issue and admit that they were wrong about that. But there are other ways that they could get rid of him. And I see them looking the other way while some of this, uh, some of this Hunter Biden stuff blows up and maybe just letting him fall on his sword like that. His party's already slowly starting to abandon him and run away from him because of his polling and because of his uh, his cognitive I- issues and, and the embarrassment that he's become for the party. And I think that they will look for opportunity to throw him under the bus in the next few years and try to or in the next few months and try to get rid of him. Because I know that I think that they also know he cannot make it to the end of this term in 2024. Yeah, I mean, even his biggest supporters at the New York Times, Maggie Haberman, wrote a scathing piece about him. She's the one who was spreading the Russia collusion lie over and over again for years. Mm -hmm. And even she is turning on him at this point. Congressman, it's great to get your. Great to get your view. You know, I've often wondered how it's going to go down with Biden. I've often wondered how it's going to go down with Biden. Because if the idea is that the people pulling his strings would prefer Kamala, and I'm not so sure they would, because she can't string together two sentences and she doesn't have dementia. She's just stupid, okay? But on the off chance that somebody wants her to be president, if Biden doesn't make it halfway through his first term, has to leave office for some reason between now and noon on January 20th, 2023, and Kamala becomes president, she could run for election in 2024, but not in 2028. If Biden doesn't leave office until after 12 noon on January 20th, 2023, the halfway mark of his term, then theoretically, Kamala can run for president in 2024 and 2028. That's, you know, the setup with the, uh, the U.S. Constitution. Now, again... We saw um, just a few days ago, California Gavin Newsom. Isn't he uh, Nancy Pelosi's nephew? He was at the White House walking around, strutting around with his uh, uh, jacket slung over his shoulder like he owned the place. Seemingly a job interview while Dementia Joe is out of the country, so... I'm not so sure they want Kamala in there. Maybe the powers that be, Barack Obama, Susan Rice, Valerie Jarrett, George Soros, World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, would rather see Newsom in there. I don't know. I don't know. Well, they stole the 2020 election, and I, I don't know, you know, The uh, 
swing states are really going to have to tighten down on some things to keep them from stealing the 2024 election. I'll just say that. Okay, Deborah Burks. Let's get to Deborah Burks. The great Jeffrey A. Tucker over the Brownstone Institute. He's the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute and the author of many thousands of articles in the scholarly and popular press, 10 books in five languages, most recently Liberty or Lockdown. Um, Also the editor of the best of Mises. Mises is one of the great uh, Austrian uh, economists. Writes a daily column on economics, the Epoch Times, and speaks widely on topics of economics, technology, social philosophy, culture. He's got a new article over the Brownstone Institute entitled, Dr. Burks Praises Herself While, While Revealing Ignorance, Treachery, and Deceit. Let's dig in. The December 2020 resignation of Dr. Deborah Burks, White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator under Trump, revealed predictable hypocrisy. Like so many other government officials around the world, she was caught violating her own stay-at-home order. Therefore, she finally left her post following nine months of causing unfathomable amounts of damage to life, liberty, property, and the very idea of hope for the future. Even if Anthony Fauci had been the front man for the media, it was Burks who was the main influence in the White House behind the nationwide lockdowns that did not stop or control the pathogen, but have caused immense suffering and continue to roil and wreck the world. So it was significant that she would not and could not comply with her own dictates, even as her fellow citizens were being hunted down for the same infractions against so-called public health. In the days before Thanksgiving 2020, she had warned Americans to, quote, assume you're infected, unquote, and to restrict gatherings to, quote, your immediate household, unquote. Then she packed her bags and headed to Fenwick Island in Delaware, where she met with four generations for a traditional Thanksgiving dinner, as if she were free to make normal choices and live a normal life while everyone else had to shelter in place. Do you remember this? The Associated Press, of all places, was first out with a report December 20th, 2020, when they said, Burks acknowledged in a statement that she went to her Delaware property. She declined to be interviewed. She insisted the purpose of the roughly 50-hour visit was to deal with the winterization of the property before a potential sale, something she says she previously hadn't had time to do because of her busy schedule. In her statement, Burks said, I did not go to Delaware for the purpose of celebrating Thanksgiving. 
adding that her family shared a meal together while in Delaware. Burke said that everyone on a Delaware trip belongs to her immediate household, even as she acknowledged they live in two different homes. She initially called the Potomac home a three-generation household, formerly four generations. Um, White House officials later said it continues to be a four-generation household, a distinction that would include Burke's as part of the home. So that's from the AP. Jeffrey A. Tucker continues... So it was all a sleight of hand. She was staying home. It's just that she has several homes. This is how the power elite comply, one supposes. The BBC then quoted her defense, which echo the pain experienced by hundreds of millions when they said, well, they had her saying, here's the quote from Burks, reported by the BBC, My daughter hasn't left that house in 10 months. My parents have been isolated for 10 months. They become deeply depressed, as I'm sure many elderly have, as they've not been able to see their sons, their granddaughters. My parents have not been able to see their surviving son for over a year. These are all very difficult things, unquote. Indeed. However, she was the major voice for the better part of 2020 for requiring exactly that. No one should blame her for wanting to get together with family that she worked so hard for so long to prevent others from doing so. That's what is at issue. The press piled on and she announced that she would be leaving her post and not seeking a position in the Biden White House. Trump tweeted that she would be missed. It was the final discrediting, or should have been, of a person that many in the White House and many around the country had come to see as an obvious fanatic and fake, a person whose influence wrecked the liberties and health of an entire country. It was a fitting end to a catastrophic career. So it makes sense that people might pick up her new book to find out what it was like to go through that kind of media storm. The real reasons for her visit, what it was like to know for sure that she must violate her own rules in order to bring comfort to her family. And the difficult decision she made to throw in the towel, knowing that she has compromised the integrity of her entire program. One slogs through her entire book only to find this incredible fact. She never mentions this. The incident is missing entirely from her book. Instead, at the moment in the narrative at which she would be expected to recount the affair, she says almost in passing, quote, When former Vice President Biden was declared the winner of the 2020 election, I had set a goal for myself to hand over responsibility for the pandemic response with all its many elements in the best possible place, unquote. At that point, the book skips immediately to the new year. Done. It's like Orwell, the story, even though it was reported for days in the world press and became a defining moment in her career, is just wiped out from the history book of her own authorship. Somehow it makes sense that she would neglect to mention this 
Reading her book is a very painful experience, all credit to Michael Singer's review, simply because it seems to be weaving fables on page after page, strewn with bromides, completely lacking in self-awareness, punctuated by revealing comments that make the opposite point of what she is seeking to make. Reading it is truly a surreal experience, astonishing, especially because she is able to maintain her delusionary pose for 525 pages. Recall that it was she who was given the task by Anthony Fauci of doing the really crucial thing of talking Donald Trump into greenlighting the lockdowns that began on March 12, 2020 and continued to their final hardcore deployment on March 16, 2020. Now, remember, this is 15 days to flatten the curve that turned into two years in many parts of the country. Her book admits that it was a two-level lie from the beginning. Here's her quote. She says, We had to make these palatable to the administration by avoiding the obvious appearance of a full Italian-style lockdown. At the same time, we needed the measures to be effective at slowing the spread, which meant matching as closely as possible what Italy had done. A tall order. We were playing a game of chess in which the success of each move was predicated on the one before it. She says, at this point, I wasn't about to use the words lockdown or shutdown. If I had uttered either of those in early March, after being at the White House only one week, the political non-medical members of the task force would have dismissed me as too alarmist, too doom and gloom, too reliant on feelings and not facts. They would have campaigned to lock me down and shut me up, unquote. In other words, she wanted to go full Chinese Communist Party, just like Italy, but didn't want to say that. Crucially, she knew for sure that two weeks was not the real plan. Again, quoting from Burks, I left the rest unstated that this was just a starting point. No sooner had we convinced the Trump administration to implement our version of two-week shutdown then I was trying to figure out how to extend it. Fifteen days to slow the spread was a start, but I knew it would be just that, a start. I didn't have the numbers in front of me yet to make the case for extending it longer, but I had two weeks to get the numbers. However hard it had been to get the 15-day shutdown approved, getting another one would be more difficult by many orders of magnitude in the meantime, I waited for the blowback for someone from the economic team to call me to the principal's office or confront me at a task force meeting. None of this happened, unquote. Now, think about it. What's happened in the last two-plus years? The U.S. economy has been hit hard, and the economies of China and Russia are booming. Booming. I don't think that is accidental, do you? Jeffrey A. Tucker, Brownstone Institute, says, it was a solution in search of evidence she did not have. Trying to find the evidence for 
a lockdown of more than 15 days. She told Trump that the evidence was there anyway. She actually tricked him into believing that locking down a whole population of people was somehow magically going to make a virus to which everyone would inevitably be exposed somehow vanish as a threat. Meanwhile, the economy was wrecked domestically and then all over the world as most governments in the world followed what the U.S. did. Where did she come up with the idea of lockdowns? By her own report, her only real experience with infectious disease came from her work on AIDS years earlier. A very different disease from a respiratory virus that everyone would eventually get but which would only be fatal or even severe for a small cohort. A fact that was known since late January. Still, her experience counted for more than science. Deborah Burke says, In any health crisis, it is crucial to work at the personal behavior level. She says that with the presumption that avoidance at all costs was the only goal. Again, she says, with HIV-AIDS, this meant convincing asymptomatic people to get tested, to seek treatment if they were HIV-positive, and to take preventative measures, including wearing condoms, or to employ other pre-exposure prophylaxis if they were negative. So she immediately hops to the analogy with COVID. She said, I knew the government agencies would need to do the same thing to have a similar effect on the spread of this novel coronavirus, the most obvious parallel with the HIV-AIDS example was a message of wearing masks. So in her mind, masks are the same things as condoms. Remarkable. This so-called obvious parallel remark sums the whole depth of her thinking. Behavior is all that matters. Just stay apart. Cover your mouth. Don't gather. Don't travel. Close the schools. Close everything. Whatever happens, don't get it. Nothing else matters. Keep your immune system as unexposed as possible. I wish I could say her thought is more complex than that, but it isn't. This was the basis for lockdowns. For how long? In her mind, it seems like it would be forever. Nowhere in the book does she reveal an exit strategy. Not even vaccines qualify. From the very beginning, she revealed her epidemiological views. On March 16, 2020, at a press conference with Trump, she summarized her position when she said, we really want people to be separated at this time. People? All people? All people everywhere? Not one reporter raised a question about this obviously ridiculous and outrageous statement that that would essentially destroy life on Earth. But she was serious. Seriously deluded not only about how society functions but also about how infectious disease of this sort functions. Only one thing mattered as a metric to Deborah Burks, reducing infections through any means possible, as if she on her own could cobble together a new kind of society in which exposure to airborne pathogens was made illegal. All right, so here's an example. There was a controversy about how many people should be allowed to gather in one space Uh, as in home, church, store, stadium, or community center. She addresses how she came up with the rules from her book. The real problem with this 50 versus 10 distinction for me 
was that it revealed that the CDC simply didn't believe to the degree that I believed that SARS-CoV-2 was being spread through the air silently and undetected from symptomless individuals. The numbers really did matter. As the years since have confirmed, in times of active viral community spread, as many as 50 people gathered together indoors, unmasked to this point, of course, was way too high a number. It increased the chances of someone among that number being infected exponentially. I had settled on 10 people gatherings, knowing that even that was too many, but I figured that 10 would at least be palatable for most Americans, high enough to allow for most gatherings of immediate family, but not enough for large dinner parties and critically large weddings, birthday parties, and other mass social events. So she puts a fine point on it. She says, if I pushed for zero, which is actually what I wanted and what was required, this would have been interpreted as a lockdown, the perception we were all working so hard to avoid. So what does it mean for zero people to gather? A suicide cult? In any case, just like that, from her own thinking, and straight to enforcement, birthday parties, sports, weddings, and funerals came to be forbidden. Here we gain insight into the sheer insanity of her vision. It is nothing short of a marvel that she somehow managed to gain the, mo- the amount of influence she did. Notice her above mention of her dogma that asymptomatic spread was the whole key to understanding the pandemic. In other words, on her own, and without any scientific support, she presumed that COVID was both extremely fatal and had a long latency period. To her way of thinking, this is why the usual trade-off between severity and prevalence didn't matter. She was somehow certain that the longest estimates of latency were correct, 14 days. This is the reason for the wait-to-weets, wait-to-weeks obsession. She held on to this dogma throughout, almost like the fictional movie Contagion had been her only guide to understanding. Later in the book, she writes that symptoms mean next to nothing because people can always carry around the virus in their nose without being sick. After all, this is what PCR tests have shown. Instead of seeing that as a failure of PCR tests, she saw this as a confirmation that everyone is a carrier no matter what, and therefore everyone has to lock down because otherwise we will deal with a black plague. Somehow, despite her astonishing lack of scientific curiosity and experience in this era, she gained all influence over the initial Trump administration response. Briefly, she was godlike. But Trump was not and is not a fool. He must have had some sleepless nights wondering how and why he had approved the destruction of that which he had seen as his greatest achievement. The virus was long here, probably from October 2019. It presented a specific danger to a narrow cohort, but otherwise behaved like a textbook flu. Maybe he must have wondered his initial instincts from January and February 2020 were correct all along. Still, he very reluctantly approved 
a 30-day extension of lockdowns entirely on Dr. Deborah Burks's urging and with a few other fools standing around. Having given in a second time, still, no one thought to drop an email or make a phone call for a second opinion. This seemed to be the turning point. Deborah Burks reports that by April 1, 2020, Donald Trump had lost confidence in her. He might have intuited that he had been tricked. He stopped speaking to her. It would still take another month before he would finally rethink everything that he had approved at her behest. It made no difference. The bulk of her book is a brag fest about how she kept subverting the White House's push to open up the economy. That is to allow people to exercise their rights and freedoms. Once Trump turned against her and eventually found other people to provide good advice, like the tremendously brave Scott Atlas, five months later he arrived in an attempt to save the country from disaster. Deborah Burks turned to rallying around her inner circle. Anthony Fauci, Robert Redfield, Matthew Pottinger. Oh, that's a name to remember, and a few others. Plus, assembling a realm of protection outside of her that included CNN reporter Sanjay Gupta and very likely the virus team of the New York Times, which gives her book a glowing review. Now, recall that for the remainder of the year, the White House was urging normalcy while many states kept locking down. It was an incredible confusion. The CDC was all over the map. I gained the distinct impression of two separate regimes in charge. Trump's regime versus the administrative state he could not control. Trump would say one thing on the campaign trail, but the regulations and disease panic kept pouring out of his own agencies. Deborah Burks admits that she was a major part of the reason due to her sneaky alteration of weekly reports to the states. Oh, my goodness. Another quote from her book is coming up in mere moments here on the Doc Washburn Show. She uh, she ought to be in jail as far as I'm concerned. Let me once again express how thankful we are to our advertisers. I want to mention a couple of them to you. They make it possible for us to do what we do. Like my friend Justin Minton, M-I-N-T-O-N, Minton in Benton. Now, Justin's a former insurance adjuster who left the insurance industry to become a private lawyer, founded the Minton Law Firm to help injured people fight against powerful insurance companies and corporations. And he has sure helped me out with the three automobile accidents I've been in since 2019. The Minton Law Firm has a great team of lawyers, including the 2016 Trial Lawyer of the Year and the 2016 Outstanding Young Lawyer of the Year. The insurance companies take Justin Minton and his team of lawyers seriously because they know they can and will take your case to trial if need be. So whether you want to go to trial or settle out of court, it's a really good idea to have a knowledgeable trial attorney on your side. Justin's team aims to bring justice to clients who've been injured and need somebody to stand up for them. No matter what the injury, Justin Minton, make sure the Minton Law Firm always works hard for you. Whether you're in a car wreck, hurt on the job, or you or a loved one is suffering from the carelessness of another, if you're in Arkansas... Justin Minton Law, M-I-N-T-O-N, Minton and Benton, is here to help you. Just call the Minton Law Firm, 501-943-4195, or visit justinmintonlaw.com today. Hey, I'd like to help you with some health issues. You have migraines, neck pain, back pain, 
vertigo, acid reflux, eczema, problems with your blood sugar, maybe even hay fever. Okay, let's do a little test. Look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? Look at a picture of yourself. Are you tilting your head to the left or the right instead of sitting up or standing up straight? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I got rid of my migraines, neck pain, and hay fever. Let me explain to you how it works because it's the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect your respiratory system, reproductive system, circulatory system, even digestive system. And yes, it can cause migraines, neck pain, back pain, acid reflux, eczema, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar. Do yourself a favor. If you're in Arkansas, call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center 501-279-2009 for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted, because you probably do. If you're outside Central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on Find a Doctor Near You. And I sure hope you can. All right, thanks again. Thanks again for our friends and advertisers. Uh, Doctors J.R. and Tanya Crabtree at Arkansas Preservical Center. And Justin Minton, M-I-N-T-L-O-N, Minton and Benton. Justin Minton is my attorney, and the Crabtrees are definitely my doctors. All right, let's, let's, let's go back to this just remarkable article here from Jeffrey A. Tucker, Brownstone Institute, brownstone.org, Dr. Burke's praises herself while revealing ignorance, treachery, and deceit. So, we left off with her admitting she was a major part of the reason for the disconnect between what Trump wanted and what the administrative state was doing due to her sneak alteration of weekly reports to the states. From her book, she says, After the heavily edited documents were returned to me, I would reinsert what they had objected to, but place it in those different locations. I would also reorder and restructure the bullet points so the most salient, the points the administration objected to most, no longer fell at the start of the bullet points. I shared these strategies with the three members of the data team, also writing these reports on our Saturday and Sunday Report writing routine soon became write, submit, revise, hide, resubmit. Fortunately, the strategic sleight of hand worked. That they never seemed to catch the subterfuge left me to conclude that either they read the finished reports too quickly or they neglected to do the word search that would have revealed the language to which they objected. And slipping these changes past the gatekeepers and continuing to inform the governors of the need for the big three mitigations, masks, sentinel testing, and limits on indoor social gatherings. I felt confident I was giving the states permission to escalate public health mitigation with the fall and winter coming. Jeffrey A. Tucker continues. He says, 
As another example, once Scott Atlas came to the rescue in August to introduce some good sense into this wacky world, he worked with others to dial back the CDC's fanatical attachment to universal and constant testing. Scott Atlas knew that track, trace, and isolate was both a fantasy and a massive invasion of people's liberties that would yield no positive public health outcome. He put together a new recommendation that was only for those who were sick to test, just as one might expect in normal life. After a week-long media frenzy, the regulations flipped in the other direction. Deborah Burks reveals that it was her doing, another quote from her book, This wasn't the only bit of subterfuge I had to engage in immediately after the Atlas-influenced revised CDC testing guidance went up in late August. I contacted Bob Redfield. Less than a week later, Bob and I had finished our rewrite of the guidance and surreptitiously posted it. We had restored the emphasis on testing to direct. We had restored the emphasis on testing to detect areas where silent spread was occurring. It was a risky move, and we hoped everyone in the White House would be too busy campaigning to realize what Bob and I had done. We weren't being transparent with the powers that be in the White House. Jeffrey A. Tucker says, one might ask how the heck she got away with this. Well, she explains. Another quote from her book. The guidance gambit was only the tip of the iceberg of my transgressions and my effort to subvert Scott Atlas's dangerous positions. Ever since Vice President Pence told me to do what I needed to do, I had engaged in very blunt conversations with the governors. I spoke the truth that some White House senior advisors weren't willing to acknowledge. Censoring my reports and putting up guidance that negated the known solutions was only going to perpetuate COVID-19's vicious cycle. What I couldn't sneak past the gatekeepers in my reports, I said in person. Jeffrey A. Tucker continues, most of the book consists of her explaining how she headed a kind of shadow White House dedicated to keeping the country in some form of lockdown for as long as possible. In her telling, she was the center of everything. The only person truly correct, truly correct about all things given cover by the vice president and assisted by a handful of co-conspirators. Largely missing from the narrative is any discussion of the the science gathering outside the bubble she so carefully cultivated. Whereas anyone could have noted the studies pouring out from February onward that threw cold water on her entire paradigm, not to mention 15 years or make that 50 years, or perhaps 100 years of warnings against such a reaction from scientists all over the world with vastly more experience and knowledge than she. She cared nothing about the science and evidently still does not. It's very clear, Burks had almost no contact with any serious scientist who disputed the draconian response. Not even John Ionidas, who explained as early as March 17, 2020, that this approach was madness. Interesting, interesting. I should know that. Well, let, let me 
Let me go look at the uh, at the link. John Ioannidis. Oh, okay. Professor of Medicine and Professor of Epidemiology and Population Health, as well as Professor by courtesy of Biomedical Data Science at Stanford University School of Medicine. Oh, I see. Professor by courtesy of statistics at Stanford University School of Humanities and Sciences and co-director of the Meta Research Innovation Center at Stanford Metrics, Stanford University. She couldn't care less that he came out March 17th, 2020 with an article entitled A Fiasco in the Making. As the coronavirus pandemic takes hold, we are making decisions without reliable data. She didn't care. She was convinced she was in the right, or at least was acting on behalf of people and interests who would keep her safe from persecution or prosecution. For those interested, Chapter 8 of her book provides a weird look into her first real scientific challenge, the seroprevalence study by Jayanta Bhattacharya, published April 22, 2020. It demonstrated that the infection fatality rate, because infections and recovery were far more prevalent than Burks and Fauci were saying, the infection fatality rate was more in line with what, might, with what one might expect from a severe flu, but with a much more focused demographic impact. Bhattacharya's paper revealed that the pathogen eluded all controls and would likely become endemic as every respiratory virus before had. Deborah Burks took one look and concluded that the study had unnamed, quote, fundamental flaws in logic and methodology, unquote, and, quote, damaged the cause of public health at this crucial moment in the pandemic, unquote. And that's it. That is the beginning and the end of any idea of Deborah Burks grappling with the actual science. Meanwhile, the article was published in the International Journal of Epidemiology and has over 700 citations. She saw all differences of opinion as an opportunity to go on the attack in order to intensify her cherished commitment to the lockdown paradigm, even now. With scientists the world over in outrage, with citizens furious at the governments, with governments falling, with regimes toppling, and anger reaching a fevered pitch while studies pour out by the day, showing that lockdowns made no difference and that open societies at least protected their educational systems and economies. She's unmoved. It's not even clear she's aware. Deborah Burks dismisses all contrary cases such as Sweden. Americans could not take that route because we're too unhealthy. South Dakota, rural and backwater. Yeah, rural and backwater. Burks is still mad that the brave Governor Christy Nome refused to meet with her. She dismisses Florida. Oddly and without evidence, she dismisses the case of Florida as a killing field, even though its results were better than California, while the population influx to the state set new records. Nor is she shaken by the reality 
there is not one single country or territory anywhere on the planet Earth that benefited from her approach, not even her beloved China, which she still, China, which still pursues a zero COVID approach. As for New Zealand and Australia, she probably wisely doesn't mention them at all, even though they followed the Burke's approach exactly. The story of the lockdowns is a tale of biblical proportions, at once evil and desperately sad and tragic, a story of power, scientific failure, intellectual insularity and insanity, outrageous arrogance, feudalistic impulses, mass delusion, plus political treachery and conspiracy. It is real-life horror for the ages. A tale of how the land of the free became a despotic hellscape so quickly and unexpectedly. Burks was at the center of it, confirming all of your worst fears right here in a book anyone can buy. She is so proud of her role that she dares to take all credit, fully convinced that the Trump-hating media will love and protect her perfidies from exposure and condemnation. There is no getting around Trump's own culpability here, by the way. He never should have let her have her way. Never. It was a case of fallibility matched by ego. He has still not admitted error. But it is a case of enormous betrayal that played off presidential character flaws, like many in his income class. Trump had always been a germaphobe that ended up wrecking hope and prosperity for billions of people for many years to come. I've tried for two years to put myself in that scene of the White House that day. It's a hothouse with only trusted souls in small rooms, and the people there in a crisis have the sense that they're running the world. Trump might have drawn on his experience running a casino in Atlantic City. The weather forecasters come to say a hurricane is on the way, so he needs to shut it down. He doesn't want to, but agrees in order to do the right thing. Was this his thinking? Perhaps. Perhaps, too, someone told him that China's President Xi Jinping managed to crush the virus with lockdown, so he can, too, just as the World Health Organization said in his February 26th report. It's also difficult in that environment to avoid the rush of omnipotence, temporarily oblivious to the reality that your decision would affect life from Maine to Florida to California. It was a catastrophic and lawless decision based on pretense and folly. What followed seems inevitable in retrospect. The economic crisis, inflation, the broken lives, the desperation, the lost rights and lost hopes, and now the growing hunger and demoralization, the educational losses and cultural destruction, all of it came in the wake of these fateful days. Every day in this country, even two and a half days late, even two and a half years later, judges are struggling to regain control and revitalize the Constitution after this disaster. The plotters usually admitted in the end taking credit like criminals who cannot resist returning to the scene of the crime. This is what Dr. Books, this is what Dr. Burks has done in her book. Well, there are clearly limits to her transparency. She never explains the real reason for her resignation. Even though it is known the world over, 
She pretends the entire Thanksgiving fiasco never happened and thus attempting to write it out of the history book that she wrote. There's so much more to say. And I hope this is one review of many because the book is absolutely packed with shocking passages. And yet her 525-page book, now selling at a 50% discount, does not contain a single citation to a single scientific study, paper, monograph, article, or book. It has zero footnotes. It offers no go-to authorities and displays not even a hint of humility that would normally be part of any actual scientific account. And it nowhere offers an honest reckoning for what her influence over the White House and the states foisted on this country and on the world. As the country masks up yet again for a new variant and is gradually being groomed for another round of disease panic, she can collect whatever royalties come from sales of her book while working at her new gig, a consultant to a company that makes air purifiers called Active Pure. In this latter role, she makes a greater contribution to public health than anything she did while she held the reins of power. That, gentle listeners, is Jeffrey A. Tucker, founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. His article is entitled, Dr. Burks Praises Herself While Revealing Ignorance, Treachery, and Deceit. It's over at brownstone.org. I highly recommend that you share it far and wide. Far and wide. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm getting uh, some comments here. Even though it's almost 3 a.m. Eastern, 2 a.m. Central. Some comments from people listening to the live stream. See, most people listen to the podcast at their leisure after the fact. Some people do listen to the uh, to the live stream. This one young lady says, remember, Dr. Scott Atlas said that team had no data. And then she says, yes, why did Trump listen to them? I mean, you're right, he was a germaphobe, but good doctors tried to talk to Trump. He didn't even listen to the frontline doctors. On oh, writing the name down of the uh, company that Deborah Burks is the consultant for now, don't buy. And she says, thanks, Brownstone Institute is a great source. Well, somehow or another, Dr. Scott Atlas finally got Trump's attention. But it seemed to be, seem to be too little too late. Now, I do have a clip from Deborah Burks at one of those uh, COVID-19 press conferences where she ignores a question from a reporter. Deborah Burks makes a statement. A reporter, I have no idea if it's uh, liberal mainstream media or conservative. I don't know who the reporter is. But a reporter asks a reasonable, logical question in response to what Deborah Burks has just said, and then eventually the reporter's audio kind of trails off because she realizes that when she started a question, Deborah Burks walked away 
from the microphone. She's a, a megalomaniac. Here we go. So I think in this country, we've taken a very liberal approach to mortality. There are other countries that if you had a pre-existing condition, and let's say the virus caused you to go to the ICU and then have a heart or kidney problem, some countries are recording that as a heart issue or a kidney issue and not a COVID-19 death. Um, Right now, we're still recording it. And we'll, I mean, the great thing about having forms that come in and a form that has the ability to mark it as COVID-19 infection, the intent is right now that those, if someone dies with COVID-19, we are counting that as a COVID-19 death. Are you, can you be sure, and you hear from coroners that that's not necessarily the case, or are you sure, how can you be confident about that, and is there any concern that it skews yeah, is there any concern that it skews? Oh, that's right. She's upset that I'm questioning her, so she walked away. Remember when we learned back in 2020 that if somebody died of a combination of Lou Gehrig's disease, diabetes, and lung cancer, that chalked it up as a COVID death? Remember that? That right there. That right there is Deborah Burks justifying that perfidy, and walking away. Walking away as a reporter tries to ask her about it. Man, oh man, oh man, oh man. I got to tell you. All right, hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Don Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way, big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online, have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental United States. Did you hear the story about um, Andrew Teckel Sundberg? Guy who was shooting into the apartment of a woman with her small children in the apartment. Did you hear about that in Minnesota? Well, Black Lives Matter now is complaining. They're protesting. Yes, indeed. The Star Tribune, big newspaper in Minnesota. Dozens of protesters gathered outside the Southside apartment building where a Minneapolis police fatally shot a black man two days earlier. And your tweet of the day is the great Matt Walsh of What is a Woman fame. Matt Walsh, who said, yes, it is terrible to think that in America, a black man can't even indiscriminately fire into an occupied apartment unit without fearing violence from police. We must march until black men can do whatever they want to, to anyone, without any repercussions whatsoever. Hashtag racial justice. Well, there you go. There you go. Unfreaking believable 
And, of course, any black person in America who believes in justice will agree with Matt Walsh and me on that. Unfreaking belief. I was talking to, I live in a black neighborhood. Well, I'm not going to tell you where. I was talking to my neighbor earlier today who said, hey, that thing about that, that, that Jose, Jose Alba, that guy that got prosecuted for murder at that bodega in New York City, he said, I've seen the video from two different angles. It was self-defense. I said, yeah, and what about the uh, the girlfriend of the guy that he had to stab who actually stabbed the bodega guy? He's like, yeah, it's just, it's just wrong, you know? You don't want to be in a place like New York City or New Orleans or any of those big blue cities that have the George Soros prosecutors. All right, look, I have been promising to you ever since I started this thing an hour and 20 minutes ago that I had an update, new material on the Ashley Babbitt murder, and indeed I do, Tom Fitton over at Judicial Watch. And I went through and painstakingly took out any time he would, like, stumble over a word or whatever because Tom is fantastic. He's got great content. And we all, you know, make little verbal goof-ups from time to time. So we took a 15-minute and three-second audio file down to just 12 minutes and 47 seconds. Tom Fitton on the stuff that Judicial Watch has been able to find about new material, new evidence on the Ashley Babbitt situation. Here he is. For all the noise you're hearing about January 6th, that Judicial Watch is actually doing the legitimate investigation on January 6th. I, jo- I joked on Twitter earlier this week that maybe Judicial Watch should hold its own January 6th hearings. What do you think of that? Uh, we just uncovered new documents about the shooting death of Ashley Babbitt uh, that are quite extraordinary. And I encourage you to go to our website and review them directly because, you know, I can't obviously discuss every jot and tittle of them. Uh, but the documents include Include, uh, and Judicial Watch's Federal Freedom of Information Act lawsuit forced the release of these documents. They were involuntarily disclosed of the DOJ memo that declined the criminal prosecution for Ashley Babbitt's shooter. And uh, there are some extraordinary extraordinary revelations in that. The documents reveal that, obviously, as we said before, Byrd refused to provide a statement, but actually was allowed to provide an informal discussion or informal recitation of what went on during a tour of the site with his lawyer. So I think anybody who has helped out of this process, helped Byrd get away with murder, eventually should be indicted as an accessory after the fact. I mean, imagine another police officer involved in this type of shooting getting that type of kid club treatment. It wouldn't have happened. Now, to go back in time here, or to kind of get the facts out there, Ashley Babbitt was shot as she was crawling through a window by Lieutenant Byrd. And Byrd just popped out, shot her. Uh, She wasn't told to stop. Supposedly, there were there was general yelling about get back, get back. But he came out and shot her without warning. She wasn't armed. She didn't have a weapon in her hand. She was crawling through a window. They found subsequently that she had a pocket knife in her pants. But obviously, that wasn't a factor in the shooting. So it was a bad shooting. It was an unjustified shooting. 
And so the DOJ in this memo bends over backwards to uh, try to pretend that what Byrd did was fine and that his lack of cooperation and the fact they didn't even bring together a grand jury to investigate this. Why not? This is what the overview and recommendation reads in this declaration memo. This memorandum recommends that the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia decline for criminal prosecution the fatal shooting of Ashley McEntee, and that was her maiden name. The declaration is based on a review of law enforcement and civilian eyewitness accounts, physical evidence, recorded radio communication, cell phone footage, MPD reports, Metropolitan Police Department of D.C., forensic reports, and the autopsy report for Ms. McEntee. After a thorough review of the facts and circumstances, there is insufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Byrd violated Miss McEntee's civil rights by willfully using more force than was reasonably necessary or was not acting in self-defense or the defense of others. Byrd panicked. He shot this woman. He shot blindly into a crowd of people. As Judicial Watch uncovered in other documents and videos, you had other police officers on the other side of the door coming up behind Babbitt when she was shot. And, of course, there were other people who were milling about behind Babbitt, those demonstrators, who also could have been killed. Yeah, there's no excuse to not indict this guy. No excuse. There are accomplices in the government, I believe. Inappropriate. All three service officers, according to the memo, who were around that area, including Byrd, had their service pistols drawn, pointed them in the direction of the barricaded entry doors, and repeatedly instructed the mob to get back. The mob of demonstrators ignored the officers' commands and continued to break the glass on the doors in their attempt to breach the speaker's lobby. Suddenly, Ashley McEntee began to crawl through one of the doors where the glass was already broken out. As she was climbing through the door, Byrd stepped forward from his tactical position towards Miss McEntee and fired one round from his service pistol, striking McEntee in her left shoulder just below the clavicle. Miss McEntee then fell back from the doorway and onto the floor. I tell you, that's something out of the Democratic Rump Committee. I mean, the Pelosi January 6th committee could have written anything more favorable to the Pelosi police officer who killed an unarmed civilian. All right, so Rump Committee. What does he mean by that? Um, uh, apparently, the term comes from the Rump Parliament. It was the English Parliament after Colonel Thomas Pride commanded soldiers to purge the Long Parliament December 6, 1648, of those members hostile to the grandees' intention to try King Charles I for high treason. So you have a rump committee, meaning that everybody on there is of a like mind. It's not a regular committee where you have um, Democrats doing one thing and Republicans trying to hold accountable doing the other thing or vice versa. So that's why he uses that term. For no good reason. Now, what's really interesting is uh, Byrd uh, did not create any police reports or documents relating to the incident and did not provide an official statement regarding use of force, though he did, quote, voluntarily debrief and walk through the scene with his lawyer. Now, incredibly, there's an evidence bag that Byrd signed off on that's missing. So this is what we found. He didn't write the report. 
he was allowed to voluntarily debrief, which is obviously a favor, and evidence went missing that he was responsible for. No harm, according to the Justice Department. And of course, the police department of Nancy Pelosi did nothing about this shooting either. This is what Byrd said, according to the report in his voluntary debrief. Bird heard glass breaking and saw some of the items used to barricade the doors being pushed down. Lieutenant Bird continued to tell the rioters to get back, get back. Bird then saw a rioter with a backpack on start to climb through one of the broken glass doors. Bird saw the rioter, quote, as a threat. So he stepped forward from his tactical position and fired one round at the rioter. The rioter fell back out of the opening and Bird eventually stepped back into the seated area of the speaker's lobby before confirming to other officers that arrived on the scene that he was the one that fired the service weapon. Incredible. No charges, no significant questioning. The fact remains, Ashley Babbitt was unarmed. The officers around Bird saw that she was unarmed. Bird provided no specific warning to Babbitt. Babbitt did not present a threat to Bird directly or even indirectly at the time she was killed. And the only homicide that happened on January 6th was the killing of Ashley Babbitt. Uh, I'm not so sure about that, Tom. Roseanne Boyland down in the uh, the tunnel and a couple of men whose names I don't recall who were hit by objects shot by police and suffered cardiac arrest and died almost immediately. Uh, Tom Fenton, don't get me wrong, Judicial Watch, great guy, but I'm surprised that he's saying Ashley Babbitt was the only one. Pretty sure there were three others. An unarmed civilian who was a 14-year veteran of our armed forces. And also, which I think is very interesting in this document, uh, there's a use of force history that Byrd had an issue with. Byrd had one prior use of force matter that was originally sustained by the U.S. Capitol Police, but after Lieutenant Byrd appealed, he was found not guilty by the Disciplinary Review Board. Boy, I'd like more details on that, wouldn't you? Wouldn't the media... Wouldn't it Congress, but because Babbitt was of the wrong political class, it's okay. When you look what happened in the prosecution of George Floyd, and uh, when you look at the attacks on the police for shooting individuals, and the war on the police, and then you see the left protect Byrd because he shot the right political person unnecessarily. It shows you just how politicized our law enforcement has become and how corrupt the Congress is that they are allowed the, their police force to operate with such impunity. Impunity is the word. There's no excuse. There's no excuse for Ashley Babbitt's murder and not to be indicted. Something else that's very interesting, and of course wasn't discussed by uh, the January 6th uh, rump operation, is that uh, this declination memo details that Byrd said that due to COVID-19 and other issues, the normal staffing for a joint session was less than half of what Lieutenant Byrd usually had assigned to the House chamber. 
Think about that. Due to COVID-19, I'm not sure if they were the restrictions or people were out sick. I don't think there were people out sick. There's no indication of that. But they had half of the people they normally would have had there for security. And, of course, if they had better security, they wouldn't have had this unrest. They wouldn't have had this disturbance. Because there wasn't enough security, because there wasn't troops, National Guard troops there and things like that, you had the police take actions that, frankly, riled the crowd up, and some in the crowd saw an opportunity to cause trouble. And some of those people doing that were federal agents. Even AOC now is saying that January 6, 2021 at the Capitol was an inside job and that a lot of the Capitol Hill police were working with instigators in the crowd. I wonder if AOC has ever heard of Ray Epps. More from Tom Fitton, Judicial Watch. But when you've got the necessary security, riots and disturbances uh, can be mitigated or, frankly, they don't even begin. So this is big information that Judicial Watch has uncovered. Again, doing more and thorough and honest work than anything the January 6th committee is doing. So the big headlines here are uh, Lieutenant Byrd was treated with kick gloves by the Justice Department. Evidence in the Ashley Babbitt killing, evidence that Byrd was responsible for, has gone missing. Another side information that came out was that there was a New York Times reporter and it's unnamed, who was acting as a confidential witness for one of the January 6th prosecutions or investigations. Isn't that interesting? I thought the media was supposed to be neutral on these matters, but they're happy evidently to cooperate with the Justice Department to get one of those January 6th people, right? Incredible. Also, what was very interesting is they gave us a draft press release, which is unusual because typically we don't get draft press releases. We've litigated about whether we should get draft press releases, and the Justice Department's position has been, no, you don't get them. But they had talked about in this press release announcing their decision not to prosecute Byrd. In the original, they used the term crowd repeatedly or group. And throughout there, they deleted and substituted the word mob for crowd and group. Again, showing the politics behind this effort to protect Byrd. And so this is just, again, part of the many January 6th documents that Judicial Watch has been able to uncover, not only on the Babbitt shooting, where we are done more than anyone to uncover the information, but multiple records from the FBI, but records also from the U.S. Park Service that showed that the feds and others knew there was going to be a big crowd at the Capitol, and obviously there was not sufficient security. Of course, this is the sort of thing that an honest congressional investigation would be uncovering because I was concerned, and we still should be concerned, do they have competent and good security on Capitol Hill? I don't think they do. I don't think the Secret Service gives good security to the White House. I mean, they had the president have to go into a bunker because of the leftist protesters that were threatening to overwhelm security around the White House at one point. I witnessed it firsthand during a event at the White House where they threw the crowd out into the street where all these leftists were out there yelling and intimidating people. It was terrible. And if that crowd had decided to rush the entrances and the gates, the White House would have been breached. So we've got serious security measures and, you know, or security concerns. And the irony is the left isn't interested in that. What they're interested in doing is they're trying to use this disturbance as an excuse, as I say, to suppress the expression of First Amendment protected speech on election matters. 
And if it means covering up the death of Ashley Babbitt and minimizing it and not giving her justice, they're willing to do that as well. So I don't care what the Rump Committee is going to do, what Nancy Pelosi Committee is going to do. I do know that Judicial Watch is going to continue with the heavy lifting to expose the full truth as best as we're able under the law about what happened on January 6th, which is as much about not only what happened on January 6th in terms of the disturbance, but the cover-up. For instance, we're in court right now. We're waiting for a ruling from the court about Nancy Pelosi's Congress's refusal to turn over any of the January 6th videos under the public's right to know about what the government's up to. The common law right of public access to government documents. Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to turn over her Congress one second of January 6th videos. One email about what her police and security people were doing. So you've got this unprecedented cover-up, while at the same time, Pelosi and her allies in the Biden Justice Department are seeking to jail people for asserting privileges that are constitutional in refusing to cooperate with that rump committee. So Judicial Watch, we just don't talk, we act. And our Constitution is under attack, not only from this committee, but from other agencies of the Biden administration, and we're going to do our best to hold them to account and protect the rule of law. God bless them. God bless Tom Fitton for trying to hold an out-of-control federal government accountable. Tom Fitton do the Lord's work over there at the Judicial Watch, I believe. Right, you've been listening to episode 196 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X. And that's the way it is, Monday, July 18th, 2022.